welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm Josh Spector, and I am your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, this podcast exists to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. Very simple. Here's how it works. In each episode, a different guest comes on and asks me three questions. We have about a 10-minute conversation about each of them, and that's it. No fluff, lots of actionable tips that you can hopefully put to use to grow your audience or business, and hopefully my guests can as well. Today, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff that has to do with growing a focused audience. And unlike a lot of advice, which is all about how to go big, we'll talk a little bit about how to grow a, a small and potentially more valuable audience. We'll also get into how to create content that resonates and a bunch of other good stuff. One quick note before we get started, if you find my podcast helpful, you will absolutely love my skill sessions. They're a series of one hour videos where I show you how to do things like define your niche, grow your newsletter, get clients, build relationships, repurpose your content, just about everything you need to do to have a successful career and business as a creative entrepreneur. You can go to joshspector.com slash sessions to check them out. You can buy them individually or buy an annual membership, in which case you get all of them. You get invited to join the live recordings. You get to ask questions. You get to come to our monthly jam session Q&As, which are just open Q&As with members. Good stuff. You will love it. Like I said, if you like this podcast. So now let's get into this podcast. Today, my guest is Darren Smith. Darren is a film producer and creative entrepreneur. He's the founder of Craftsman Films, Craftsman Creative, Lightbulb Courses, and is an author, podcaster, and business strategist for creative business owners. He also happens to be a good guy who I have not talked to in a while, but I've gone back and forth with over the past couple of years on a bunch of stuff. So with that in mind, hey, Darren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, man. I just wanted to chat, really. It's just like how I hang out with Josh. I guess I'll get on his podcast if that's the only way I can hang out with him. Yeah. It's so funny because when you submitted your questions, which by the way, anyone who's watching or listening, you can go to joshspector.com slash questions to submit your questions to come on the show. And I saw it and I was like, oh my God, how have I not had Darren on yet? Like, this is a no brainer. And for those of you that don't know, Darren is in a very similar niche to me. So I think if you like my stuff, you will definitely like his stuff with Craftsman Creative as well. And you had some great questions and I'm excited to, to chat about them and catch up with you, of course. So let's jump into it. What is the first thing you want to know? Yeah, thank you. So for context, like everybody online seems to be talking about growing big audiences, right? That's the <laughs> game that we're all playing. If you're trying to be a content entrepreneur or a content creator or a creative entrepreneur, it's all about build a massive audience on social media, then get them to an email list. And then, then yeah, I actively hate the idea of a big audience. Like every time that I dive in and double down, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go back on Twitter and I'm going to do my thing, blah, blah, blah. Like within a week, I'm burnt out and I'm just like, no, I actively don't want the outcome that I'm building towards here. So my question is, I'm hoping that I'm not alone in this. You are not. not just I, I actually think there's a, a silent majority out there. of, uh -huh. uh, Yeah. So the question is, how would you structure your business to be focused on a smaller audience, but like deeper connection and higher value and longer term relationships than just vanity metrics and big audience mm. for the sake of big audience? You know, it's funny. I'm glad that you referenced, do other people feel this way? Because I think there's a lot of people that feel this way, and I think there's even more people that probably should feel this way. 
I think that chasing more followers, more audience, more email subscribers, more all of this stuff, it's really a trap. And the vast majority of people drastically overestimate how big of an audience they need to accomplish whatever it is they want to accomplish. And I think that's the first important thing, which again, the fact that you're asking this question, and it's a question that I think everyone should ask themselves, is like, what are you actually trying to accomplish? Like, I'm amazed by people who maybe their business is, let's say, consulting or it's some service-based business, and they can't help more than, I'm making this up, 20 people a year. And they probably can't even do that many. But they're like, how do I get 100,000 people on my email list? And it's like, what do you need 100,000? Like, you could have 40 people on your email list, and if 20 of them hire you, you're set. So I think it's got to start with what are you actually trying to do? I always say sort of social media is a tactic, not a goal in of itself. Followers and audience size is an absolutely terrible goal. It's like, what do you actually need? Now, there are businesses that do need that scale. That's a totally different thing. But in most cases, most of the people in my audience, most what I call creative entrepreneurs, they don't need nearly the amount of people that they think they need. And what happens is the chasing of that bigger audience actually prevents them from succeeding and they wind up getting incredibly frustrated because they're trying to build all these sort of, I think you described it as a deeper connection. Like that's what they need. They need a deeper connection with fewer, more specifically targeted people. But meanwhile, they're playing this game where they're trying to get shallow connections to a massive number of people and then wondering why it's not working, right? Even when they succeed, they go, I have 20,000 people on my newsletter list and no clients. You're doing it wrong, right? So I'm definitely on board with sort of the underlying principle behind the question. So as far as what I would do to go about doing that, so if I were focused on deeper connections, smaller audience, I think another piece of this you mentioned is higher value offers. And that higher value can mean higher price. It can mean more value. That can mean a lot of different things. But in most cases, if you're going to work with fewer people, you're probably going to charge more money, et cetera. So here are a few things that I would do. The first thing I would do is I don't think I would measure audience growth or follower numbers at all. Now, it's human nature. You're going to notice it. It feels good when you get a follower, an email subscriber, whatever. I'm not going to pretend that I would never look at it, but it would absolutely not be a key metric. I would not obsess over it and I would not optimize for it. What I would measure and what I would optimize for are quality interactions or engagements with the quote unquote right people, depending who my audience is and who I need to reach. So rather than each day or each week or each month, going, how many newsletter subscribers did I get? How many followers did I add on Twitter? I would go, how many one-to-one -one interactions did I have with the right people? And when you start measuring that and you start optimizing for that, that is game-changing. It's also way more in your control than the other. If I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff out there and I hope people see my tweets and whatever. When you start optimizing for an individual interaction, that's actually a lot easier. Like I can find the right, I don't need them to find me and follow me. I can find them and I can, and I don't mean direct message them like everybody does with like, Hey, you want me to make videos for you? Like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about genuine interactions with people in various ways. And there's different levels of that, obviously, all the way up to phone calls or pitches or whatever. Another thing that I would do is I would, depending on my specific niche and my goals, I would do things that don't scale. So this is something I think that people miss. If you don't have to scale what you're doing, it's a massive advantage. 
because the people that are trying to build these big audiences that are trying to go big, they're entirely focused on, I need my efforts to scale. I need it to be automated. I need to schedule the tweets. I need to do the auto DM. You know, in my newsletter welcome email, I invite people to tell me about themselves. And then I reply and say, oh, you might find this helpful. You might find this. That's not automated. That's manual. That does not scale well. And to be honest, as my newsletter has gotten bigger, initially I replied to every single one. And I've now finally started to change the welcome email and be like, if I can help you, if I have something for you, I will reply to you versus every single one. But at a smaller level, that is a fantastic tactic. And so if you don't care about going big and you're just focused on the right people, that's a competitive advantage for you versus the person that's trying to scale. But it's only a competitive advantage if you actually take advantage of it. So thinking about what can you do that doesn't scale that the other people that are trying to scale aren't doing. So that's something I would focus on. Another thing I would focus on is I would most likely, again, it depends on the specifics of the business, but if I'm going smaller, I'm going to focus on whatever I'm selling product service is going to be more high end, just because economically that needs to happen. I'm not selling a $10 ebook if I'm planning to sell it to 20 people a year. So I'm going to make sure that whatever value I'm offering to people, whatever I want people to hire me or buy from me to do is going to be a high enough end product that if I succeed, it's going to work financially. And then accordingly, I need to focus on attracting if I'm going to have a smaller audience and sell a higher end product, I need to be getting the people that can actually afford that product. So that's another sort of piece of it. The next thing I would say is, and this honestly is probably worth doing, even if you're going after a big audience, but maybe slightly easier to do on a small audience, I'd spend less time creating content and that kind of stuff and more time distributing the high value stuff I created. People get caught up in the sort of, I got to tweet every day and multiple times a day and this, that, and the other, and I got to do all this stuff. I don't need as much quantity if I'm going after fewer people. So I would focus on a few key, and by the way, this is something even where I'm at now that I've been thinking about. Like, I don't know that I'm going to do this, but I had a, just a thought exercise for myself the other day where I was like, I have a million blog posts and tweet threads and all this stuff all over the place over years about like, let's say newsletter growth, for example. And I was like, you know, what would happen if I limited myself and said, I can only have five newsletter growth blog posts, period, and go look at all that. And what would they be? And one might be how to get subscribers and one might be how to monetize and one might be how to write a newsletter. Like what would those five topics be? And could I go pull all the stuff that I've written and just take the most valuable excerpts and literally be like, I am only going to have five newsletter growth blog posts forever. And I can add to them and I can whatever. But that's an example of maybe I don't need to be creating stuff all the time. And especially on a sort of smaller focus. I just need a few super high quality pieces of content. And then I need to focus more of my time on getting those to the specific individuals that I want to, to see them. Another thing is I would put more effort into referrals after finding the perfect person. So let's say I was in a service-based business. If I don't need a million different clients, when I get a client who's the perfect fit, I got to figure out how to find more of them. And I got to talk to them and incentivize them and spend my time figuring out how can I turn this one client into two, into three, into four, whatever. Very different than a scalable product where it's like, I want a hundred people. Like, yes, you can do referrals and all that stuff and you should, but it's really different when you're sort of more micro targeting people. 
And then the last thing here is I would probably, when I thought about my niche, I would continue to go smaller and smaller. I would continue to narrow it, get more and more specific and focus on high-end clients. So for example, just taking me as an example, my work is not massively scaled, but it's also not micro niche either. But if I were to shrink it, going back to your original question, I would go, okay, well, how can I shrink? Let's take the, the me helping people with newsletter growth as an example. How can I shrink that down to high-end specific niche? So the first thing I might do is I might go, okay, well, companies and big publications are going to be able to pay me more than an individual creator. So maybe my niche is going to be help newsletter growth for big companies, media publications that have newsletters. And then I might go, well, what's a step even narrower than that? Maybe I'll do it for entertainment media publications. So now, and maybe in my own mind, I only need a handful of them. That audience is really small, but it's really specific. I don't see anyone else out there who's doing newsletter growth specifically for entertainment niche media publications. That could work. And then I'd create content specifically aimed at that. I'd be measuring and having interactions and engagements with those specific people. And I'd be entirely focused on that, knowing that if it clicks, they're going to have the budget and the money to spend a lot. And I would be shifting out of this sort of individual creator space. So... In this hypothetical, I would do a bunch of those things. And I'll leave you with one last exercise that I think would be interesting to do and probably something that, again, probably worth doing even if you're not narrowing down, but definitely if you are and you've been up and running. I'd pull 50 or 100 people out of your audience. So your email list, your Twitter followers, your whatever. And then I would ask myself, if I could only serve half of these people moving forward and I had to build a business around those people only, who would I choose? Why would I choose them? And what would I build? I don't know the answer to that because I haven't done it, but I think it's a really effective exercise to help you focus in, especially if you pull 50 or 100 people you would consider good quality people in your audience. And forcing yourself to make those choices and go, well, why would I choose this person as opposed to this other person? And if I chose that person, what could I actually sell them like and do it that way as opposed to starting from scratch if you have an existing audience? So any questions about any of that stuff? Does that hopefully make sense? It totally makes sense. And no questions, but more of like, I want to reinforce that what you're talking about is not just like pulled out of thin air. Cause that's mm. literally the journey I've been on the last, like call it six or seven months. Yeah. So went from like trying to serve everybody and was doing like $1,500 a month in revenue. Yep. And then as soon as I narrowed in and created that like high value offer, my business 10 X in like, yeah. from one month to the next 10 X. And what was, for people that don't know, for people that yeah. don't know, what was the before and after of sort of your niche or focus? I didn't have a high value offer. I didn't have something uh -huh. where I was charging 10 or 15 grand for my time to come in and help with implementation because mm -hmm. I hadn't yet narrowed specific, like, like gotten specific enough on my audience. I was trying to serve creative entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. that's too broad and it was too unspecific in the sense of like, I was attracting a lot of people that have not even started building a business yet. Like yeah. my first book that I put out, most of the people, probably 80% were in the like zero to thousand dollar a month range as far as what they were making. Yeah. And I realized like, okay, that audience doesn't have money to spend on whether it's coaching or courses or consulting <laughs> events or anything like that. Okay. So what do I need to do? I need to go up a few levels. And it mm -hmm. was Jay Klaus and Brian Clark that were on a podcast that I co-created yeah. 
And they both told me, they're like, just do a high value offer and narrow in and get really specific on who that is. And the, I went through that exact process like you talked about. Yeah. And my answer was, who already overvalues what I do? So mm -hmm. I went back and I looked at who were the clients that came into my business last year and paid me more than $10 or $20. And the answer was like 100% video-based production company, agencies, yeah. film background, because that's what I do. I'm a film producer. Yeah. So when I was hopping on podcasts and talking about how to grow a business, those people wanted to learn from me and work with me. So that's the high value offer I created. And yeah. the first person I went out to, an hour later, I had a check because it was <laughs> such a perfect right fit. Yeah. And I like that term, like you said, the right client. I like right person, right offer, right time. Yeah. If those th three things are in place, then it's a done deal already. So I yeah. just wanted to reinforce everything you just shared because I'm going to go back and listen to this and take notes to see if there's anything mm. I missed. But for those listening, like you're 100% right and I'm living It makes through. a huge difference. Yeah. It makes a huge exactly. difference in all the sort of time and effort that you're putting into this stuff. And it's subtle. And I think that's why so many people miss it, right? Because it's not, it's just that slight tweak of getting a little more specific, a little more narrow, and it just it changes everything. Yeah. Congratulations on the transition and I'm not surprised it's working well for you. Cool. Let's get to your second question. What's the next thing you want to know? Yeah, I think you are uniquely, you stand out. I mean, I follow all the people that are in our space, the people that are quote unquote competitors, but also mm -hmm. those that are just in this kind of creator economy space on LinkedIn, on Twitter. And the thing I've always struggled with is promotion and marketing and just being on social media and being like promotional, like sharing, yeah. even when I'm sharing value, it still feels like there's a tinge of, oh, he's doing this to get leads or to get clients mm -hmm. or to grow his business. I can't escape that. But I feel like whenever you put stuff out, it resonates so deeply. And so my question is, how do you see content? How do you create content that resonates? And so it's not just for content's sake, but it's actually serving. It's actually connecting mm. with people on a deeper level. It's a great question. And it's funny because it made me think about a lot of times you do stuff and you don't really, I'm like, well, how do I, how do I do that? Or how do I tell people to do that? It's one of the reasons I love this podcast is because questions like that force me to actually think through sort of strategically and communicate and explain both to others and to myself. Oh yeah. Like this is the process of that. You should give so, out awards if you have a guest on and they stump you. I know. There should I be know. like a little award that we get to put on our Twitter profile that says I know that, on his podcast. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's funny because all the time I'm like, oh, that's how I do that. Or like that, that's why I do that. I never really thought about it that way. But one thing I'll say before I get into my answer also is I think that this question of resonance with content actually ties into the first question because I do think that the more narrow and specific you get, the easier it is to create content that resonates. And most people whose content is eh, take it or leave it, they're too broad. And that's part of the, that's part of the problem. It's really hard. And I would say almost impossible to create resonant content for a, a audience that's broad. It's going to wind up feeling generic, take it or leave it much easier, the narrower you get. So when I think about resonance and content, my first thought is like, okay, well, we need to sort of define the term, right? And what does it mean for content to resonate? And I think that it typically means one or more of these five things. So the person who is the audience or the person who's consuming the content, first of all, they might think, 
okay, I can relate to this. That in order for it to resonate with them, there has to be something relation, some frame of reference. I identify with this struggle. I identify with this goal. I identify with this point of view. There's something about it that your target audience relates to, and that makes it resonate with them. The second thing that I think makes content resonate is the person consuming it says, I can do something with this. That's why so much of my stuff is actionable. Share all the mindset stuff in the world you want, but just tell people what to do with their social media bio or what to do with their newsletter welcome email. If there's something that they can do with it, I think that's the second big thing that leads it to resonate with people. Otherwise, it's just an opinion. Maybe it resonates, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it seems obvious to them, maybe not. The third thing that I think makes content resonate is when people consume it, they say, this reflects something I believe or something that I want. So it's a reinforcement of something that is in their own mind. So I've said this before, but you know, it's if you ever notice with business books, most best-selling business books, the title or concept of the book is something people want to be true. So four-hour work week, love that to be true. That book range about being a generalist. Generalists would like that to be true, that it's an advantage. And it almost doesn't matter whether or not it is or isn't. Because there is no definitive and the book is making the case for whatever's possible. But it resonates with an audience who's like, I believe this. I want this to be true. So now they're giving you the benefit of the doubt and you saying it is reinforcing their own sort of in uh, their own existing beliefs and that creates resonance. The fourth thing that creates resonance in content is a, a spin on that or an extension of that where the person sees the content and says, this gives me a new perspective on something I believe or want oh, they're doing that and I want that to be true, but I never thought about it that way. I want to believe or I do believe a four-hour work week is possible, but reading that book has now given me, oh, I never realized you could outsource X, Y, and Z. I never realized that it's so funny because that book was written so long ago, but I never realized that maybe it's possible to work remotely, that kind of stuff. So a new perspective on something they believe or want to believe is true. The last thing that I think or last characteristic of content that resonates is this will change me in some way. And it's most likely a change or a transformation that person wants to make. So they see this content and they go, oh, reading that book, watching that video, listening to that person say this, doing that consulting call. This thing resonates with me because it's going to help me make a change. And in some cases, people know the change they want to make. In other cases, they don't, but they just have that feeling of something needs to change. Something's not working. I'm not happy with this. I don't know what to do. Oh, this content has shown me a potential change. And that resonates. So I think those are the sort of five characteristics of content that resonates. Now, the next obvious question is, okay, well, that's great, Josh, but like, how do you create How do you create content that does that? I called myself out on it, but I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty good. That is what resonate content is. But to my own point, like what's somebody gonna do with that? So I tried to come up with some stuff that you can do with it or how to create content that does resonate. The first is I think most content that resonates and checks those boxes comes from some version of personal experience. They've done it. They haven't just studied it. The example I was thinking of is I was thinking about like a professor who gives a lecture. Uh, Let's say they're giving a business lecture, but they've actually built a successful business versus the professor who's just studied academic books. Both could be resonant. It's much more likely the one who's actually done it is going to be more resonant than the one who's just studied it. And I think that, by the way, I should say, there is an epidemic of people creating content about stuff they have not done. 
it is amazing to me that you'll see people that's like, I'm going to show you how to get 10,000 Twitter followers. And it's like, you have six. So what, like, what do you know? So I think that's really important. I always tell people like, you should not be creating content about anything that you haven't actually done. The next one is specificity. If you want to create content that resonates, it has to be very specific. I don't think generalizations resonate. You can post all the generic inspirational quotes you want in the world and you might get likes, but you're not going to, it's not going to resonate on a deeper level. It's going to make anybody do anything. The next one, again, because of sort of action and change being so important of this, you want to create content that drives action and helps people change, helps a transformation. This needs, this doesn't need to, but should probably be very strategic. Any piece of content that you're creating, you should know why you're creating it. There should be a very specific reason for the audience and also for yourself. I'm tweeting this thread, I'm writing this blog post, I'm doing this video, I'm doing this podcast because I want this to happen. I want the people that are consuming this to get X, Y, and Z. I want it to help them do this and I want it to do this for me. By providing value to them, it's gonna create value for myself in this specific way. No more like what I call just random acts of content. I'm posting a tweet today because I'm supposed to tweet every day is not a good reason to post a tweet. A recipe for disaster. That resonates, by the way. Yeah, see, exactly. We've all been there. And then the last one, you know, there's a reason that content exists beyond to serve me. And I think that's an extension of what I said before of like, you shouldn't just be creating content because you have a product to sell. The content should be helping people who then can get the product because they want more help. And then the last thing I think also is this idea of creating content for content's sake, which is what I just touched on. Every single piece of content you create should be designed to serve a specific purpose. And I think this is another good exercise, good and potentially scary and uncomfortable exercise to do. But literally go back and look at what you recently created and analyze what purpose did it serve for the audience and also for you, because it really should be both. Like the whole point of providing value, like, yes, most importantly, it should provide value to the audience, but it also should be linked to what you're trying to do, whatever that is. Go back and look at your last 20 tweets. Go back and look at your last five blog posts, whatever it is, and look at them just through this lens and go like, what was the purpose of this? What was I trying to do? And some of it also, again, with things like blog posts and whatever, you can change it. So looking at it and going, well, maybe if I made these edits, I could optimize, like maybe this is a good piece of content, but it's not really serving a purpose, but it would if I added X, Y, and Z. And being very deliberate, because I think we all fall into the trap of just creating content. Like you get in the flow and you're like, oh, this will be good. And people want to know this and people want to know this. But it's really helpful to take a moment and go, am I being as strategic with this content as possible? And that will ultimately help it resonate. Any questions about any of that? No, it's really cool. Actually, I do have a question because yeah. I think I'm assuming that you and I are similar in that it's easy for us to build stuff, right? You spin up a podcast. It's good. You know how to do it. It works. You know how to do skill sessions. You know how to do your daily newsletter. I'm in the same boat. Like I can write and create a new piece of content yep. all day long, but the marketing is where I'm lacking. And mm -hmm. so I guess the question is, or the follow-up is, how do you prevent doing too much, too many different versions of building this and, oh, maybe I'll just add a newsletter. Maybe I'll just add yeah. a Twitter. Maybe I'll just add another channel instead of really forcing yourself to do the, like to get the results. Because the truth yeah. is always in the results, right? If I'm not yeah. getting leads from 
X piece of content, what makes me think I'll get it from Y piece of content on a different platform if the content itself isn't generating the outcomes like you were talking yeah. about? It's really hard. It's not easy. And it's definitely, I think, again, for people like us who like to build, like to create, like to see opportunities everywhere. Yeah, I don't use Instagram. I don't use TikTok. I barely use LinkedIn. I know there's opportunities there, but you can't be everywhere. And we'll put a link in the show notes. I did, there's an episode of the podcast where I talked about things that I've developed to sort of avoid burnout, which is a piece of what you're talking about. And one of the big things for me was really putting up some sort of boundaries and figuring out how I was going to prevent myself from taking on too much and from doing too much. And in that excerpt and in that episode, I talk about the specifics of how I do that. But, you know, some of them, like one, for example, is if I'm going to take on something new, something else has to go. So I can, there's that, that famous like saying, which is like, you can do anything you want. You just can't do everything you want. So that is really helpful on a couple of levels because it's like, okay, I can for example, like when I said I was going to start doing this podcast, I used to publish a blog post every week. That has gone by the wayside. Like I haven't posted blogs in a long time. I'm a good writer. I like writing blogs. But if I'm going to start doing a weekly podcast, something has to go. Now, the old me would not have done that. I would have kept doing all of it and I would have completely burned out and it <laughs> did not end well. So I have learned this the hard way, but that is one thing. It also helps prevent me from chasing the shiny new thing because I can go, oh, I want, I want to start this podcast. I want to do whatever. Well, do I want to do it enough to stop blogging? Because now there's a cost. And the other thing I do is typically with stuff that I start and take on, there's a blog post, which we'll also link to that I called like the hundred times method. Hundreds a random number. But the basic idea is I would commit to doing whatever it was a certain amount of time up front. And so that does a couple things. Number one, it prevents me from jumping into things. You would not believe how many times I've almost started other newsletters, like oh, wow. all the time. I know exactly how many times. <laughs> but that is a, it's a check on myself to go, number one, if I'm going to start this other thing, I have to get rid of something else. Am I really prepared to get rid of something else that I'm doing? And number two, I have to commit to do it for X amount of time. Am I really prepared to commit to do it for that? The other advantage of that 100X method is if you do choose to do it and you do choose to start it, you don't have to worry about constantly like, do I quit? Do I not quit? Is it working? Is it not working? Because you go, I've, so like when I launched this podcast, I originally was going to do like a season model and I was like, I'm going to do 12 episodes and then I'm going to figure out what I want to do. And it was working out and I liked doing it. And so I decided like, ah, forget it. I'll just keep going. But going into it with that prevented me three episodes in going, this isn't worth it. I didn't even have to think of like, I'm doing at least 12 and then we'll see. So it's not easy, but those are some of the ways I very try to deliberately prevent myself from chasing too yeah. many things. Easier said than done. All right. So let's get to your last question. What is the third thing you want to know? Awesome. So I, we've read the books like Bit Different, Mike McCallowitz. It's a great book. There's a lot of people talking about differentiation and positioning and standing out in a marketplace. Yep. And to me, that seems like a shortcut. It's like, oh, instead of doing what everyone else is doing and being another one of these, why don't I just do it a little bit differently and then I'll stand out? I feel like the best example I have of doing that, and it's, I think, originally how you and I connected was I was writing my book in public mm -hmm. about a year and a half ago, August, September of 2021. I would just write chapters and then publish them online as I was writing, sometimes without yeah. even editing. <laughs> yeah. 
But everybody was like, what is this guy doing? He's like writing a book and publishing right. the same five minutes later. I'm like, yeah, but it got me my first couple hundred subscribers and it got me connected to people like mm -hmm. Justin Moore and Jay Klaus and all these awesome people. And so I'm trying to probably the reason this question came up is like I'm feeling like I'm doing the same as everybody else again. The question is, what are some unconventional ways? And unconventional doesn't necessarily have to be the crux of the question here, but what are some ways that you've found to serve an audience in order to stand out? So the first thing is, and you touched on, the, on a little of this, again, I'll use some cliches, but like, I am definitely a firm believer in the idea that like different is better than better. So anytime people talk to me about what they're doing, like why, if I say like, why should someone subscribe to your newsletter? Why should they watch your videos? Why should they choose you? Why should they hire you? And they're like, oh, I'm better than X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, no, you're not. Like better, better is completely subjective, right? Better for who, better for what? And I think I might've even referenced this on another podcast. I had said that like, is Mark Merritt's podcast better than mine? Not if you're a creative entrepreneur trying to figure out how to grow your audience in business. If you want a professional comedian and in interviews with massive, like, yeah, it's definitely better, right? But there is no definitive better. So once you realize that, it really is about staking out where's your sort of unique position within things and really why should a certain type of person who wants a certain type of thing choose you over the other options. There are always options. There are always alternatives. And the answer to that should never be I'm better. It should be I offer this that they don't offer. This is this is where I fit in, in the mix. The other thing I would say about standing out is, again, another sort of cliche, but I say it all the time, like you don't stand out by fitting in. And I think it seems obvious, but human nature is to do what everyone else is doing. Human nature is I don't want to get noticed which is the exact opposite of what you need in order to get noticed, obviously. So it's very counterintuitive. My podcast is even an example of this. The obvious podcast to do is have people on and interview them. That's what most people's shows are. I chose to have people come on and ask me questions to invert it, right? I'm not the only one that does that, but it's certainly not the norm. My newsletter, my weekday newsletter being a single paragraph is not the norm. And understanding that there are no rules about how any of these things need to be done. But grasping that and understanding that doing them in a different way is a massive competitive advantage. Might not work. And by the way, this also goes into like it being different as opposed to better. There are people that hate the idea of a one paragraph newsletter. My newsletter is not better for them, but there's people who love it. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be different with how I deliver my expertise and all of that kind of stuff. So understanding that to stand out, first of all, you have to do things differently. You also, in most cases, have to go against the conventional wisdom and not being controversial for the sake of being controversial. You have to actually believe it. But if you're just saying the same stuff that if your advice for a newsletter is get engagement or social posts, right? Like, yeah, okay. Like that's not going to get you noticed. Like everybody, everybody says that. It's funny, there's an exercise that I just tweeted the other day that I recommended for newsletter creators that I think is a good one here in terms of figuring out how to stand out and even if you stand out, because I think a lot of people aren't even sure. Like, and that is, I said, if you have a newsletter, go to a bunch of newsletters in your niche, go look at their sign-up page and read the descriptions. If their description could also describe your newsletter, you're probably not differentiated enough and standing out enough. And by the way, I might be guilty of this because I don't even know that my description, there's probably a lot of newsletters whose descriptions would match what mine is. Although the one paragraph part is different, there's certainly some 
things, right? But that's a really good exercise to see like, is my messaging, am I really differentiated? Or there's like 20 newsletters out there that sound just like mine. It cracks me up when I see people's newsletter sign up pages and they're like, subscribe to get the, I'll share six interesting links each week. Okay, you and everybody else on the internet. Other stuff to help you stand out. This again, seems obvious, but it's not. If you genuinely care about your audience and helping people, that actually helps you stand out. I think about guys like Arvid Call. There are people out there. A lot of the people you mentioned, Jay Klaus, Justin Moore. I think you're this, I think I'm this. Like people that gen, you can get across, like they genuinely care. It seems like a, the bar is low, right? Because most people are selfish and doing their own thing. You will stand out. I've had so many people say to me, and it's funny because I, I don't really, I don't really think of myself as like exceptionally generous. I think of myself as like normal, whatever. But I kept having people going like, oh my God, you're so generous the way you share all this stuff. And I kept seeing that word and it literally confused me. Why is everybody saying I'm generous? Like, I just thought I would like, that's what you do. But I came to realize like, oh yeah, like not everybody does that. And that does help me stand out. Another one, and this is maybe not the opposite end of the spectrum, but maybe similar. Extreme is probably the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Extreme confidence stands out especially in the expertise space. I don't mean cockiness and arrogance, but confidence. And I think this is especially true if you're going to do any kind of consulting or coaching or anything like that. Part of what people are hiring you for is your confidence that you can actually help. They want to drift off your confidence and go, he seems to know what he's talking about. He's going to give boost my confidence as a result. If you're wishy-washy, if you're, you see this with people trying to sell stuff all the time, do me a favor and buy my new course. I have a whole other rant about like, when you're selling, you're not asking someone to do a favor for you. You're offering to do a favor for them. If okay, you created so something. Here, I want yeah, to dive into that for one second. Please do. I, I've seen this one so much recently, which is like, <laughs> I'm thinking about doing something like this. Yeah. What do you think? And I'm just like, mm -hmm. I actually DM'd somebody who did it on Twitter the other day. And I was like, dude, this is unsolicited feedback <laughs> here. But it makes me so uninterested in whatever it is you could possibly create. Because right. you're so wishy-washy about whether or not you actually think it's valuable enough to create. Like yeah. the positioning of that thing. Yeah. Oh. And then you compare it to what like Nathan Barry just did, where he's like, here's a big long blog post. And at the end. I'm opening up 10 seats and it's going to be super value and you get my yeah. time. And those 10 seats are going to sell out in five minutes. Yeah. And he didn't have, he, he validated it the same way without the whole, like, what do you guys think of this idea? Like, I understand what they're trying to do, trying to validate it and trying to gauge interest and the whole concept of like, I'm not going to make something that people don't want. That all makes sense. But I think you're right. I think the presentation of it you can have those conversations one-to-one -one and you're going to get more value out of it. Anyway, this also speaks to the shrinking of the audience. Go DM 50 people in your audience and say, hey, I'm thinking of making a thing. I'm thinking it might be this. Assuming I make it, what would you want in it? What's interesting, with my skill sessions, the members get to vote on the topics. So I offer them like, okay, my next skill session is going to be about one of these three things. What do you want? And I also have a form with the voting thing of like, if that thing is chosen, what would you want to know about it? So it's similar. I'm validating the ideas. I'm creating something that they want. And I'm getting, they're actually helping me create the product because they're saying, oh, I want this and I want to know that and I want to whatever. So the underlying principle makes sense, but you're right. That confident, the undercutting of their own sort of 
insecurity. I don't know what to make. Should I do this? There's better ways to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So yeah, I com- I completely agree. Another one, again, which, you know, sort of obvious, like being available and accessible. The amount of times that I reply to someone's email and they cannot, when they sign up to my, they reply to my welcome email, they're like, I can't believe you responded. Again, the bar is really low and it doesn't seem like just being accessible and available, responding to a direct message, acknowledging a reply. The fact that gets you noticed and makes you stand out seems crazy, but it's true because most people don't. The other one, and I think this is spot on for you, and I think just seeing you from afar, it's one of the things for a while that I was like, why is he not leaning into this? But it seems like now you've started to, and I think it's working well. But one of the ways, the best ways to stand out is bringing experience from an unrelated field into your field. You're one of a lot of people that are sharing advice for creative entrepreneurs and strategy and all of that stuff. You're probably the only one, or at least the only one I know, who also is a movie producer. And with that, that brings a whole set of expertise that while it may be a different field, can be adapted and applied into this field. And it's one of the things that makes you unique and different and stand out. And so to me, and again, it seems like you have leaned into that a bit, like that's the thing that I would be playing up in some ways because again, not for everyone. It is going to, it is, there's going to be people that are like, I don't care about that, but there's other, going to be other people and they don't have to necessarily just be like movie people, but are like, oh, that experience, that way of operating like a movie producer in this field. You you see Justin Welsh, who just rules the universe now. Like every day I see 20 people writing threads. I told him the other day, I was like, Justin, I think you've gotten to the point where it's like, my feed is now full of other people telling me how you do things. It's just crazy. But him with the systems. And that's not for everybody. But if you're like, hey, I want to develop systems as a creator, creative entrepreneur in my writing and whatever, it's like the first name that's going to come up is Justin. So I think that's a big one. And so I will, I'm going to leave you with this, right? So again, all right, that's all good and generic, but what do you actually do? So for you or anyone else, I've got three unconventional things you could do today to stand out and get noticed. So the first one is pick your absolute best trick of the trade in whatever your niche is. The thing that everyone else charges for, the hidden secret, the thing that nobody talks about, the thing that everybody, nobody says out loud, the secret truth that only the insiders know, whatever the hell it is, and go share it for free. The thing that everyone's scared, even if you sell your own consulting, your coaching, your whatever, put it out there. It feels counterintuitive and you're like, why would people hire me? But the truth is, once they see it, you're going to stand out from everyone else who's not talking about that thing. And they're going to go, that guy knows more than those other people. And I'm going to hire him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to whatever. So that's a really easy way to stand out, assuming you have something. And I think if you have any expertise, which hopefully you do, if you're trying to sell expertise, you shouldn't, you should know some stuff that people aren't saying. The second one is share a story that's relevant to your target audience or niche that makes you uncomfortable to share, but others are likely to relate to. Vulnerability really stands out and it is not easy to do, but if you are willing to, and again, not just, let me tell you what happened to me when I was in fifth grade, it needs to be relevant to like what you're doing, but being willing to put that out there and show something that maybe isn't perfect. If you're a person who teaches people how to grow a business and part of how you know what you know is because your first two businesses flopped horribly, you might think sharing that is gonna hurt you, it's actually gonna help you. 
because all those people who also had businesses flop horribly are going to go, wow, this guy turned it around. So being willing to share vulnerable stuff. An example of this was really interesting. So I am not a big, not a big TikTok user, and I'm certainly not a follower of Alex Earl, who I guess is a huge influencer and whatever. Exactly. So Alex Earl, she's like a college girl at the University of Miami, and I guess has millions and millions of followers. But so she was on Howard Stern recently, and he was interviewing her, and she said something really interesting. He was talking about like when her TikTok took off. And she said that she lives with, I guess, a bunch of other like college girls and a thing and whatever, right? And, and so he was like, is that when it all took off? And she said, no. She said, I was posting videos and bikinis and all this stuff, whatever, and it just wasn't really doing anything. And then she had this massive, horrible acne attack. Terrible. And she was terrified to post anything. And, but she started to post with the acne and with all the everything. And she's like, that's when it took off. And she was shocked. Because all these people were, oh my God, this beautiful girl also gets acne and she, and it was real and it was vulnerable. And it's a perfect example of how did she stand out from all the other bikini girls on TikTok? It was because she showed the thing that most people would not be willing to show. So I think that's vulnerability really helpful. And then the last one, this is slightly crazy and takes some guts, but we talked about unconventional. Offer a double your money back guarantee. So everyone out there is like, buy my product. If you don't like it, I'll give you your money back. Buy my product. If you don't like it, I'll give you your money back and give you an extra $100 and give you an extra $50 and give you a whatever. Takes it from the kind of promise that will just be glossed over to one that's going to make people, that's going to make you stand out and get noticed. Now, if you're going to do that, you better be sure that your product is actually good. You better be promoting it to your actual audience, not random people who just want to get free money, like of that kind of stuff. But that kind of outrageous offer can really get you noticed. James Shrampko had uh, this guy who's been on his podcast a few times. I forget his name, but it's like his nickname's like Toe Cracker. I don't know. Anyway, he's like a marketing sales copywriter guy. And he told this story about this real estate agent who was trying to get leads for business and clients. And she did this thing where people that were, I guess, going to either sell their home or I guess it was they were selling their home. She would reach out to them and she would say, I'd love to meet with you and tell you how I can help you sell your home. And I will give you $200 just to take the meeting. If you don't hire me, that's cool. Keep the $200, whatever. And what happened was, as you can imagine, Suddenly, lots of people who had no interest in meeting with some realtor who were going to pitch them was like, sure. And she knew that if she got in a room with them, she would close a certain percentage of them that would more than make up for the fact that she was paying $200 a meeting. Yeah. And that's standing out. Again, it doesn't, you don't ha it doesn't have to be done that way, but that's the kind of thing of thinking outside the box and finding these ways, whether it's vulnerability, whether it's making some sort of outrageous offer whether it's sharing the secrets that people don't usually talk about, that stuff. Again, you don't stand out by fitting in. So you, you got to come up with something that seems crazy. Love it. That's super cool. And try not to go broke by promising people money if they don't, if they don't buy your thing. Again, that one can be a little risky, but can work in certain situations. Would at least get people's attention. I'll put it that way. Cool. Any questions about any of that before we wrap up here? No, man. That's a masterclass right there. You should certainly be charging people money. Yeah, see, this is what I'm talking about. You got to give this stuff away for free. So Darren, tell people where they can find you, where they can get all your good stuff and learn more. Yeah, thank you. So I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn mainly. I've tried to stay off of the other platforms. 
So I'm just at Darren T. Smith on both of those. But I do these monthly workshops, which are my favorite way of getting to know people because then I actually see their faces and can interact with them and stuff. Yeah. So if you go to workshops.craftsmancreative.co, that's the best place to enter the world of Craftsman Creative. If that's something that's interested you from this conversation, I would invite you to come join us for one of those free workshops. Cool. It's a great brand name too, by the way. For me, my newsletter for theinterested.com slash subscribe, my skill sessions, joshspector.com slash sessions. Again, if you'd like to come on the show and ask me three questions, it's also a way to basically get free consulting and exposure. It's pretty, speaking of outrageous offers, joshspector.com slash questions to submit your questions. I'm on Twitter all the time at jspector. You guys have already logged off by now, I'm sure, because everybody does when you get to the promotional part at the end of the episode. Thank you, Darren. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I will see you or you will hear me next week. Thanks.